Well, let's, um, let's go to 1 Peter 3. And what I'd like to do is read 17 through 22. And um, we're going to dive into verse, the end of verse 18 and 19 and part of 20. And I'm going to hope and pray that I'm able to articulate clearly this text that has challenges to it. But why don't we pray um, before I read. Father, I'm just uh, I'm reminded in your word of a psalm that I read the other day that when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion. We were like those who dream. And our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with joyful shouting as they say among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And Lord, these great things certainly are not great in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of mere men, but Lord, they are great from your vantage point. They are great from the vantage point of the angelic hosts. Lord, when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices in celebration. And that is real. That's not a parable. That is the way you look at this grand scheme of redemption. Songs of the redeemed echo throughout the halls of heaven. Lord, there is genuinely so much we don't fully realize there is this this uh, great salvation we experience now that is so much bigger than us as individuals. It's massive. Um, it comes from your very mind that seeks to create a world that is beautiful and glorious and that is vast. You seek to create a man and a woman in your own image and likeness and seek a situation, Lord, in which these, this man and this woman and their progeny walk with you and yet, Lord, still under your sovereign control and care, this man and woman fall into sin and, and Satan is there and there's this war for their lives and, and then you make a promise that you will undo that alliance Lord, these things are so big. But we thank you so much that you've revealed to us what we need to know. And what we need to know, Lord, is that we are really sinners. Rebels in our heart of hearts, apart from you. There's no doubting that. And that is an important truth for all people to come to terms with. And yet, Lord, at the same time, there's also this reality that your love is so massive that you give what's most precious to you for us. You give us your Son, who apparently we needed more than we ever knew. Who rescues us in a situation that we could not find ourselves out of, we could not escape from. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are a willing 
Savior, an obedient Son, to come in this world and not just live here in squalor compared to the glory you experienced before, but you were misrepresented, mistreated, betrayed, beaten, mocked. And were the target of God's holy wrath. Lord, these things are so big. And we find ourselves caught up in the middle of it, thankfully on the side of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that because of no doing on our own. This is your doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. You've made us who we are. You've placed us in the Son. And we just praise you for that. Lord, you were not obligated to save, and yet you did, and we thank you. Ten thousand times we thank you. And we'll be thanking you forever. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning in 1 Peter 3, we, we look again at the, at the work of your Son. We look at the victory of your Son. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us something about these things, that, that it might renew us and re-strengthen us in our perseverance and in our faith. To your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter 3, verse 17. Peter here has been talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness, encouraging the the people, the believers scattered throughout Asia, that they're going to suffer, and that if they're going to suffer, they need to have a good conscience as they suffer, because suffering brings about all manner of temptations to, to do evil. He says, keep a good conscience, verse 16. Verse 17, for it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died, or some translations say suffered, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. What a text. We're going to attempt to work our way through the end of verse 18 and verse 19. Last time we were together, we looked here at the beginning of verse 18 where, we, where, where Peter tells us and he tells the believers in Asia that Christ suffered for sins also. And this also links us back to the suffering probably that the believers in Asia have experienced or will experience in the future. Um, Christians are marked people. Um, we just are. And Jesus let us know as much. It's not the fine print of the Christian life. It's bold right there in front. 
that if you follow Jesus, there will be a cross involved, there will be hatred from the world involved, and all these things. But that's okay, because all of those things signal the fact that we're on the right team. And uh, we talked a lot about that last time. And that Christ suffered. Christ suffered. The, the Son of God suffered, but He suffered not for His own sins, but for the sins of others. And he, he, he suffers for sins, and He does this once for all. It's a wonderful truth that, that one time, fully and forever, our sins are paid for. Again, talked about that last time. I'd love to talk about it again, but we're trying to move on. But he suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Christ is the just one. He's the righteous one. We are the unrighteous and the unjust. Why does he do this? Why does he suffer? He does it that he might bring us to God. So forgiveness, as glorious as it is, is merely a means. And it's a means to get us back to God. And that's why the essence of Christianity is more than just forgiveness of sins. The essence of Christianity is knowing the living God. Essence of Christianity is fellowship with Him, the one who made us in His image, being reconciled to God. We talked about that. What a glorious truth. Now, Peter focuses in a little bit further here on this death, and he says two things here, one about his death and one about his resurrection. And he says, having been put to death in the flesh. So this Death or the suffering that he experiences for sins is because of his death, as Peter says, in the flesh. Having been put to death in the flesh. So when you think about this whole idea of being put to death, this highlights the violent nature of the death of Jesus. In other words, he did not die of merely natural causes. He did not die from sickness. He did not die by suicide. He was put to death. That is, Jesus was consigned to death by others. That's the idea. Listen to Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2. He says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The very man who preached this sermon is the very man who's writing, obviously, this letter. And he's, he's thinking here about the reality that Jesus was put to death by the hands of godless men. Godless men put Jesus to death. And yet, the scripture also tells us in Acts 2, it was God who delivered his son over to death as well. This was God's idea. Praise the Lord. Right? The cross is not, is not the result of Jesus twisting the Father's arm to save a people who otherwise the Father did not want to save. The cross was God's idea. Predetermined plan. He sends His Savior to save men and women. It's glorious truth. But the reality is there were godless men who put him to death. But the also the other glorious truth is that Jesus was a willing sacrifice. Jesus, you remember the gospel accounts, Jesus let himself be led away by these godless men. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. There's a sense in which Jesus is not a victim. He is, but he isn't. 
And again, why was he there? He was there because he was our substitute. We deserved the treatment that Jesus received. We should have been put to death in the manner in which he was put to death, a violent death and bloody death and a suffering underneath the wrath of God and all that it means to die for us. He was put to death. Jesus was put to death. It was a violent death at the hands of godless men. And it says that he was put to death in the flesh. What does this mean exactly? Well, I mean, at some level, it just means that Jesus physically died, right? At some level. But the phrase, in the flesh, is an interesting, fle- is an interesting phrase. If you parallel it with in the spirit, you, you want to understand how they both sort of um, interact and how they both are connected at some level. We want to say that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit, and that's true. But we wouldn't go back and then impose that on the text and say, having been put to death by the flesh. So it's not so much that, that, that he was put to death by the flesh, but he was put to death in the flesh, and he was made alive in the Spirit. And what, what it's saying is, that Jesus was put to death in the, in the realm of the Spirit, or in the state of affair, or by the, he was put to death in the flesh, in other words, in sort of the state of affairs of being in the flesh, or being mortal, let's say. I think that's the idea here. He was certainly flesh and blood, but I think in the flesh means something like in the realm of the flesh, speaking of the state in which a man may still die, I think is what he's saying. But thankfully, Peter tells us that death was certainly not the last word. He was put to death in the realm of the spirit, in the realm of, of, of mortality, but he was made alive in the spirit. What does this mean? Well, just as in the flesh means to die physically in a state of mortality, in the spirit means certainly made alive by the spirit, but into a state of immortality. Listen to Paul in Romans 1. He declares that the Son of God he, he, in, in Romans chapter 1, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's, it's the Holy Spirit of God that brings about this, this resurrection life of Jesus, and it's through that that he's declared the Son of God with power. Jesus was raised by the Spirit to a glorified status by God. Listen to Paul in Romans 8. But if the Spirit of Jesus, or Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, believers, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So Paul is thinking of our mortality. We have the Spirit, but we are still in the realm of mortality. One day the Spirit will give our mortal bodies life, and we will then be in a glorified situation, a resurrected existence with both body and soul. And this is Jesus. Jesus was raised by the Spirit, but not just by the Spirit, but in the Spirit, meaning in that realm of the Spirit. In that state of immortality. Peter goes on to say, after earlier in Acts 2, he says that godless men put him to death. Godless men put him to death. He goes on to say, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Spirit wasn't going to let that happen. And he didn't have any sin of his own, so he couldn't be held there anyway. But it isn't just 
Peter's going to go on to tell us it isn't just sin and death that Jesus conquers. He does that, right? He dies for sins, he suffers for sins, he defeats death in the resurrection. But what Peter is going to bring us into now, I believe, is that this immortal glorified state of being in the Spirit also means Jesus has victory over the demonic realm. This is what he says, I think, in verse 19 and 20. That Christ was made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, many of you know that we really hammer the fact that we think that the Bible is clear. The old term is the perspicuity of Scripture, right? The clarity of Scripture. And we believe that strongly here. We believe that the Lord gave us His Word to be understood, not to be in the hands of scholars, not to be in the hands of the seminarians per se, not as a shot against them, but it's not necess- they're not absolutely necessary for biblical interpretation, right? We have the Spirit of God, we have minds that God has given us, and we have gifted teachers. And so the Lord has given us this word to be understood. And of course, Peter recognizes, doesn't he, in his second letter, that Paul writes some things hard to understand. I think there's a sense in which Peter's stuff might be a little harder, frankly. Not just here in chapter 3, but there's a couple little phrases in chapter 4 that are a little puzzling at first glance. Really, at second and third glance. So I want to make some remarks about this text. I think in the New Testament, this is probably one of the hardest, personally. Um, So we need to have some humility here. Lots of different interpretations throughout church history. But this has some of the most challenging sections to interpret in the New Testament. But again, thankfully, this is not the case with the vast majority of the scriptures. But I'm going to present my best attempt at the correct interpretation. And while I I do think I'm right in what I'm going to present, I'm not going to probably resolve every question you may have. doesn't mean there aren't answers for them. It's just, you know, I don't have time to cover them here, and I may not know them myself at this point. And when I was praying at the beginning, I was really thinking thinking about this passage. Because one thing we're sure of is that God knows the meaning. The first century readers probably knew the meaning. And, and if I'm right that this, this has to do with this proclamation to demonic spirits, this is a, this is a big... The, tr- the scriptures capture reality, right? Isn't that what they do? They're not just there to be a nice bullet point list for us to believe truths. They actually capture reality. That's what truth is. Truth is reality from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, there is some proclamation made to spirits. That's a... What is that? That's a big deal. It's something. We're going to talk about what I think it is. But this is just big. We find ourselves in this, in this, this cosmic war, in this history of redemption that's just so much bigger than we realize. So there's some stuff we just don't quite know. <laughs> but I think there's a lot we can say. 
Also, just want to say that there are two primary views with regard to verse 19 and 20 that I think that are the most plausible. The two, two primary views are this. Number one, and I used to actually believe and kind of hold this view before I really dug deep. Um, I've held, that, I've held this first view for a while without really paying attention to some of the other language. But the first view is that what, what Peter is saying here is that Noah, by the Spirit of Christ, was preaching to those in his day who were being wicked and violent, the, the disobedient there in Noah's day, whatever he was preaching. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, it talks about Noah as preacher of righteousness. So the spirits in prison would be the human spirits that are now in prison, who at one time were living in Noah's day, whom he preached to, who did not believe his message. So that's sort of how one interpretation looks at this text, that it was the Spirit of God through Noah, Spirit of Christ through Noah, preaching in his day. I used to hold that view. I think Augustine held that view. Um, but the more I look at it, the more I just, I, I think that that makes, I think that's just too awkward. And I think the text is a little bit more straightforward than that. Again, not that it doesn't create some questions. The other view, which, which I'm going to take, is that in some sense, Jesus proclaims his, Jesus proclaims his victory over sin, Satan, and death, and particularly here to the demonic or fallen angels or the spirits in prison, after his resurrection. So you can see the, the, the logic here that after, in, at the end of verse 18, it says that Jesus was made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirit. So it's the also there that's pretty critical. Because it's in this realm of being raised in the Spirit, he's not only raised in that realm, but he also in that realm, or that state of affairs, goes and makes proclamation. So there's a chronological sequence here I think that's important. It's in the Spirit in which he makes the proclamation of the Spirit, in the resurrection state. Now there's another view that found some traction in the history of the church that Jesus went to hell to suffer for us, and there he sort of finish the payment for sin, and then proclaim to those disembodied spirits there uh, sort of a post-mortem offer of the gospel in hopes that they would believe be delivered from hell. Suffice it to say, there's any view that advocates a second chance after death has no warrant in the Bible. So I'm not even going to entertain that one. But those two, those two at the beginning were the, are the ones that are most, most prominent. And like I said, I, I, I'm taking the, fall, the, the second view. So I'm going to con- continue with that in mind. So let's, let's see what the text says. Verse 19. In which also he, that is Jesus, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now I'm going to take my time, and so you have to put your thinking hat on for the next 30 minutes, because I want to break this up phrase by phrase. Maybe you can reference it later if you need to. But I'm breaking this down phrase by phrase so you can understand my thinking on it. So this is going to be a little more teaching than preaching. Maybe. So in which. So the first two words there in verse 19 are critical. 
made alive in the spirit, so Jesus made alive in the realm of the spirit, or in, in the resurrected state, in which, so he goes in that state to make proclamation. Again, critical to grasp this chronology of events to get the right understanding here. And like I said, I used to think what Peter was saying, that in which means in the Spirit meant that the Spirit of Christ through Noah was making proclamation to the disobedient people in Noah's day. And like I said, it's because in Second Peter, Noah is called preacher of righteousness. And in First Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12, the Spirit is said to be the one who predicts or prophesies through the prophets. That's why I used to think that. I think Wayne Grudem holds that view. But if one follows the logic of the verse carefully, one can see that the phrase in which, again, is referring to that state of affairs that Jesus was in after his death, after his resurrection, when he went to proclaim to these spirits. All right, so that's, that's that first little phrase there. How about he went? In which also he went and made proclamation. Well, the language here points personally to Jesus. This would be awkward if it's saying that he went means Noah preached. I think that would be awkward here. I think what it's saying again is that Jesus in his resurrected state personally went and made this proclamation somehow to the spirits in prison. In other words, it isn't Jesus going by his spirit through Noah to make proclamation that's similar to what the prophets had in first, or were said to experience in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Rather, it's the spirit, it's in the spirit that Jesus makes proclamation to these spirits in prison. I think that's an important distinction. Interestingly, this, this, this verb here, went, is the same verb used in verse 22. So look down at verse 22, describing Christ having gone, there's the verb, into heaven after angels and principalities and powers had been subject to him. So that's the same verb. So you've got in verse 19, he went and made proclamation to the spirits. And then you've got the same verb, verse 22, having gone into heaven. Or you could, you could say at some point he went into heaven after angels and authorities went in, uh, were made subject to him. So in other words, what we're saying here is that the verb for he went and made proclamation can be the same idea as in verse 22, which speaks of Christ's ascension where principalities and powers are made subject to him. I think that makes sense. You look down at verse 22, what's he saying? What's it saying is, Christ is the exalted place at God's right hand of power after having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. What's that? What is that? Well, that's some victory over the demonic realm that Jesus now presides over as king. And I think that's probably what's going on in verse 19. So stay with me. So in which also he went, 
and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So this term made proclamation most often is in a context of preaching the gospel or preaching the kingdom. You can see this throughout the gospels. But it doesn't have to be. In Acts 10, the word can be John the Baptist preaching his baptism. In Acts 15, it can be Moses, the one who was proclaimed by the Jews. In Romans 2, it's the Jews proclaiming the law. In Galatians 5, it's the preaching of circumcision. And in Revelation 5, it can refer to the strong angel asking the question, who is worthy to open the seals? The strong angel proclaims, who is the one worthy to open the seals? In each case, whether it's the gospel being proclaimed or some other truth, the nature of the word is heraldic and unilateral. In other words, it's not a term of dialogue. It's declarative in every instance. Now, we don't know yet what the truth was being proclaimed, but whatever we want to say about it, it was heraldic in nature. And I think that the recipients of the proclamation give us some indication as to the nature of the proclamation. So who are they? Well, they are the spirits in prison. And again, I'm just working through the phrases piece by piece. The spirits in prison. This is where we'll spend the most time. Throughout the New Testament, only one time are human beings referred to as spirits. And that's in Hebrews chapter 12, referring to our connection with the saints who have already died. The writer of Hebrews calls them the spirits of just men made perfect. Every other time in the New Testament, spirits are referring to demonic spirits. Every other time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, every other time. In the Gospels, the language is the unclean spirits or evil spirits. You can remember Jesus' statement when he was correcting the perspective of the disciples who were overly excited and enamored with their power to cast out demons. Jesus says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That is that you can cast out demons. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. It's a good message for any sort of success in ministry. Keep your priorities right. But here, again, it's clear that demons are the spirits in view. Demons and spirits synonymous. So I I think it's pretty likely here that the spirits to whom Jesus is proclaiming are not human spirits, but demonic spirits. And I think the next phrase underscores this. It says that they they are in prison. In prison. And that they were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So Peter is thinking here of the days of Noah... And he's thinking that these spirits, these, I think, demonic spirits, were present then. And because of this disobedience, were put in prison. So what does this mean? What does prison, what, what, how do we make sense of this? Well, we're helped, I think, in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6 give more insight for us. So 2 Peter 2, 4 
Peter here in 2 Peter 2, basically proclaiming to his readers that God is able to keep his people, preserving them through even the presence of false teachers and the reality that false teachers and sin will not go unpunished. He says this in 2 Peter 2, 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought about a flood upon the world, and on and on. So you have these angels that God did not spare when they sinned. And my question to be, if, 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 if angels are not in view in Genesis 6, when he's talking about the sons of God with the daughters of men, what other passage could you point to that's clear where you have angels sinning in the Old Testament? We'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. But I think that this is referring, I think this is, 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 is the same idea in 1 Peter, in our passage in chapter 3. The angels that disobeyed, I think, are referring to the sons of God in Genesis 6. And they were, as Peter says here, consigned to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. These pits, I think, could clearly be referring to the prison, where the evil spirits to whom the proclamation was made. Okay? Jude reinforces this. Jude chapter 6. Jude and 2 Peter, very similar. Jude says this, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So here again we see Jude describing angels abandoning their proper domain and indulging in gross immorality like Sodom and Gomorrah, or vice versa, and went after strange flesh. God placed them, it says here, in eternal bonds. Sounds like prison to me. Therefore, these demonic spirits are those that God judged and placed in eternal bonds, in darkness, in prison, is the language, awaiting the day of judgment. And why? Jude and Peter say because they sinned. They sinned. They went after strange flesh. They were immoral. They left their proper abode. They should have been in heaven, servants of the Lord, and instead they fell into immorality. So in some sense here, Jesus proclaimed to these demonic spirits in prison after his resurrection, these same spirits that were present in, in the days of Noah. Now, of course, this raises some questions. What is the nature of this prison? This, that was the first question in my mind. I mean, if I'm thinking right, you know, in my interpretation, right, these are demonic spirits. What is the nature of this prison? Are they totally incapacitated? Or does this prison simply mean that they, does it mean that they still have some influence in this world, yet they are on a state from which they cannot escape called eternal bonds? I think that's important. So try to follow me here. 
Because I think this will be very helpful as you think about the state of affairs that demons in the, in the evil realm, the evil spiritual realm, experience and are in. Listen to Revelation 18. John seeing a vision of Babylon destroyed. Listen to how Babylon is described. It's very interesting. John says in Revelation 18, 1 through 2, After these things I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Babylon here is cited. I mean, if you know your Bible well, you'll remember that Babylon was the very nation and empire that attacked the people of God in the Old Testament, brought them into exile. They're also the epitome of an anti-God, greedy, bloodthirsty, immoral empire being filled with all kinds of immorality. And here, as you read on in Revelation 18, that we, I didn't read, but if you go on to read in Revelation 18, they're bloodthirsty for the saints. In the belly of the harlot that sits upon the beast who is in Babylon is the blood of the saints. It's just, it's just symbolic of this wicked world filled with immorality and bloodthirsty for the saints. But it says that the unclean spirits and the demons are in confinement there in some sense. They are in prison there in that world, that anti-God world. So I don't think we can say here at least that the prison in which they find themselves is a prison that keeps them from impacting the saints. But it's a prison, nonetheless, that was different from where they began at some level in the presence of God. I think that it's probably the prison that keeps them from their original habitation. And Jude tells us as much that they await the great day of judgment in that state. Revelation 20 same language about Satan himself. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to the, deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. In Revelation 20, Satan is said to be bound from deceiving the nations. You can read that in your, in your own time. But, but Revelation 20 is this passage where you see that through the work of Christ, Satan is bound. But he's bound in specific from deceiving the nations. At one time, all the nations of the earth were in some sense unremittingly deceived by Satan. But due to the work of Christ, Satan is bound now from having that same degree of deception and the gospel now goes forward and has success. That's the idea. thousand years there, I think, is symbolic for a definite period of time in which Satan is bound and the gospel goes forward. 
Then John goes on to say in Revelation 20 that after these thousand years, Satan is released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations and start the war against God's people, a ratcheting up of a war against God's people. Apparently some massive stirring and increasing of animosity and violence against the people of God. You can see Revelation 19 for that. But notice that Satan's state of being bound was prison, it says. And this binding, or this prison, is the same, we have to say, as Jesus says in Matthew 12. Which, let me read it. And and just notice that the binding here of Jesus is is sure and true, and yet we know, no matter if you're amillennial or not, everybody believes that Jesus bound Satan in Matthew 12. Right? Everybody believes that through his work. And yet we'd also say that just because he's bound doesn't mean that he doesn't have influence now. So listen, Matthew 12, Jesus He's, 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 he's labeled as the guy who casts out demons by Beelzebul. And Jesus says that's ridiculous. Kingdom, that, that would divide his kingdom. He would be weak. He would be destroying himself. Jesus says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Jesus is saying, I've come to bind the strong man. I'm the stronger man, and I've come to bind him. Well, how? Well, here he says, through the Spirit, he casts out demons. That begins this this enterprise of eradicating the works of the devil. But through the cross, Jesus completely takes his sword from him, defeating death through death. But in this passage in Matthew 12, where Jesus is binding the strong man, or, or, or binding Satan... we know that this does not completely eradicate his influence upon the church. Again, you can see this in the book of Acts. You can see it in the exhortations of Paul, James, John, Peter, to resist the devil or be on guard against our adversary. I mean, there are, Paul says there are, to Timothy, there are doctrines of demons that are still in play. And Paul says there are principalities and powers still at work now and we wrestle and struggle against them. This war you feel all the time, tempted toward this, that, or the other thing, to walk away from God, or to think horrible things about God, or your brethren, and these kinds of things, it's because we still have an enemy who is alive. I won't say he's alive and well, but he's alive. So the strong man is bound, Satan is bound, and yet he's still hunting, prowling around. Seeking someone whom he may devour. Why does God allow this? How can Satan be in prison? How can, these, this, how can it say that he is bound and yet still have influence? Why does God allow this? Why is this the reality? Well, there are probably many reasons, but ultimately we, and this is not a cop-out, we can say it's for God's glory. In particular here, we can say that it's for God to show himself mighty over all evil. Show that we do not live in a dualistic universe. This is not our father strong, their father strong, but ours is a little stronger. Right? That is not the situation here. Nowhere in the Gospels will you find the demons wanting to challenge Jesus 
anywhere. They know better. It is no match. And God wants to prove it so. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? So that my what might be made known? Power. My power might be made known. There, I'm saying this is big. This is so much bigger than, than our little lives. It's so big. It's so big. The essence of Jesus is 3.15. Where, where, where God pronounces the promise that, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. To break the alliance between the woman and the serpent. That's firstly about the destruction of the serpent before it has to do with your salvation. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that it's it's first about the war between God and Satan. And we are caught up in that. Jesus Christ comes and he defeats our greatest foe, which is Satan. He binds him. He defeats him through death. And then Jesus goes and gets the spoils of that victory. And that's us. And that's what you're caught up in right now. And Satan is not happy that he lost. And it is a definitive losing. And yet, it's still a war. Job helps us with this, doesn't he? Why does God allow it this way? If he's bound, let him be bound. Well, God doesn't think that's the best. In the sense of complete incapacitation. Job's life was an example to all of us. And to be an example to principalities and powers that God is to be treasured over all that life can give. Or anything death can take away. This is the point. Job didn't fully realize it in his life. Poor Job. He didn't grasp all that. He wasn't told that. (laughs) But we see that. And we get the, the, the privilege of looking through that window. And seeing this is the way God deals with His people. He lets them be buffeted by Satan. That He might show His power. And you're making it finally to him. And you're treasuring him above all that life can give or death can take away. So so what I'm saying here is that these demonic beings, they're in prison under eternal bonds, but it doesn't mean that they're completely inactive. Some think that it doesn't make any sense that Jesus would only proclaim his victory over death to these spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Why just them, they would ask. Why why just these spirits? Well, I mean, again, there's a lot we don't know. Who's to say there are more demons than those? Maybe that was the vast majority of them. I don't know. Perhaps just Genesis 6 is just their introduction on the biblical record. And yet it's these very same demons that persist today. In prison, but there. Perhaps the same demons active in Noah's day are the same that try and distract from the mission of gospel in Acts 16, where the woman is there, possessed by an unclean spirit. And Paul has to shut her down. 
the very same demons and spirits that set themselves against the mission of the gospel today. I mean, again, there's so much we don't know. The reality is we are engaged in something so much bigger than ourselves. We just are. Therefore, Peter's text teaches us that Jesus' death and resurrection secures a victory over the demonic realm. Not so that we'll understand that Satan and his demons are extinct now, but that they're as good as obsolete in terms of finally taking us out. And now you and I, we have to wait by faith for this consummation. And we must understand that we do war, but we war against a defeated foe who, Revelation says, has great intense hatred against the children of God now. Great wrath. You will feel heat. You will be worn down in this life at times because of the pressure he will bring through relationships, through your kids, through your coworkers, through your mind. He will be there bringing heat. He hates you, but he is lost. He is defeated. Think of him there. Think of him there. Think of Satan there with this nasty, mortal blow bleeding out, but still there. That's how you should view him. He is done for. And he has full hatred against you. And what Jesus does in his resurrection is he, is ri- he rises from the dead and he goes and he ascends to the place of being the king over all kings and he proclaims a victory there over the whole demonic horde saying, I am king. I am now going to build my kingdom. You won't stop it. That's what it is. That's what I think is going on here. Listen to Paul in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says that Jesus, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, Jesus has taken it out of the way, or God has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who's that? Well, that's the demonic realm. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through the cross. So the cross removes the certificate of debt that, that, that earned us the wrath of God. But the cross is also aimed at disarming the evil demonic forces and reveals that Christ has triumphed over them. He has defeated them. The only thing they really had before God was the accusation of our sin that kept us separated from God. And Jesus has canceled that. God the Father nailed His own Son to the cross that that debt might go away. Therefore, there's no teeth in the lion's mouth for us anymore. There's no accusation that He can bring against God's elect. There's none. Jesus took it all on Himself. Therefore, that debt is canceled. Satan wanted to destroy Jesus. He in turn has defeated them and will destroy them. Just always keep in mind that Jesus himself will pick him up and throw him into the lake of fire. What a picture, Revelation 20. That's the lamb picks him up and drops him in the sun. In Jesus' resurrected state, 
as he ascends to the right hand of God, there's some proclamation made. Some proclamation of his victory. He ascends there to God's right hand. You know, Paul talks about that, that in the ascension in Ephesians 4, I don't have this in my notes, but he talks about this in the, in the ascension in Ephesians 4, that, that as Jesus ascended, he, le- he led captive a host of captives. What is that? Everything that held us captive, he takes captive. It's like there's this, there's this, this train of, of enemies and prisoners just in shackles that Jesus himself gains for his own purposes that he might free us from them. That's sort of the idea here. And again, Peter highlights this conquering and subjugation of evil spirits in the same text at the end here in verse 22. I'll read it again. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Therefore, we must understand that Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead and being exalted to God's right hand was incredibly consequential for our own lives and for the destruction of Satan and and his demons. Massive implications, not least of which that they are all subjected to him. Therefore, brethren, you do not need to be afraid of him. Tell your kids that, that know Jesus. He comes and he might scare you, but you don't need to be afraid of him. Jesus, your king, is stronger than him. Qualitatively stronger, not just by degree, right? But just at a completely different level. We don't need to be afraid of him. He's a defeated foe. These demons know that Jesus is king. What does it say? What does James say? The demons believe and shudder. Oh, they shudder. But God has purposes. God has purposes in a, in, a, in, in a messenger of Satan come to buffet Paul. God has, a, has purposes in a messenger of Satan coming to buffet you. He has, he has purposes in that. But it's not to terrify you. It's to strengthen you. It's to make you long for heaven. It's to make you trust in your king and not yourself. That was Paul, right? That was the point. I'm going to send you a messenger of Satan to keep you from exalting yourself. You know, the best gift you can have is humility. It really is. That you know who you really are. Needy, but loved, but needy. (laughs) And that you're nothing apart from him. You're dust, really. You're dust in which he's breathed the breath of life. That's what you are. But he has stamped you with a value that is beyond imagining. And the Lord Jesus shows us that in his own shed blood, doesn't he? But whenever you think about Jesus, or whenever you think about Satan, remember that Jesus defeated him. Remember he is fierce, but he is bleeding out right now. And whenever you look at him or think of him, you think of him with a mortal blow 
in his skull. Jesus is the victor. And I think that's Peter's point. If you don't know Jesus Christ, oh, what can we say? You don't have life. You're in darkness. You're in death. You're under God's wrath by your own doing. Whenever, when anyone sins, it shows they're enslaved to the sin. That's what Peter says in 2 Peter. But Jesus Christ came to free you from that. So if you want to be free from sin, if you're tired of just being empty and, and without hope and just constantly wandering in terms of your purpose and meaning in this life, come to Jesus Christ. He'll, number one, show you where you can find full and free forgiveness, right? He paid for sins once for all. And that's what you need. But that, again, is a means to bring you back to your God. Let's pray. Father, just pray that you would take these words and, Lord, seal them to our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you for your victory over Satan. What an incredible victory. Lord, a victory absolutely uh, sure, but also absolutely sure that none of us could have even touched that in terms of accomplishing what you have. Thank you that we are those that receive the reward of your suffering in knowing you. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless us to the hearts of my brethren in here. In Jesus' name, amen.